out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Our show today is about personal stories of people who are in the process of healing from post-traumatic stress disorder. And our guest is Tracy Stecker, who is a Ph.D., and she's a psychologist at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. She developed a curriculum there titled Using a Brief Intervention to Motivate Clients to Get Help in collaboration with Hazelden Publishing. Her focus is on treating veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan returning with PTSD and or substance abuse issues. Um, Several of her projects have been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute for Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. And seeing how Veterans Day was just a couple weeks ago, this is a very timely topic and um, thank you, Tracy, for um, being on our show today. And, and can you just share with us a little bit, how did you get interested in working with veterans? Well, I, I worked at um, the University of Arkansas. And while I was there, uh, most of the faculty there had um, joint appointments at both the university and at the VA. Um, the VA was not um, where I wanted to work, but where I, where I ended up. And it really took about one day being at a VA before I decided that that was definitely where I wanted to be. Uh, working with veterans is a unique experience and very rewarding and very fun. Um, can you kind of just explain just briefly um, what PTSD is? Sure. It's an anxiety disorder. It's characterized by having a traumatic event. Um, The traumatic event tends to be something in which you either felt as though you um, might die or you witnessed somebody dying. Um, There are three um, categories of symptoms associated with PTSD. They're hyperarousal, such as being really vigilant to what's around you in in the environment. Um, There's avoidance. For example, not wanting to talk about the trauma, avoiding anything associated with the trauma, and um, uh, the third one is completely uh, gone from my brain right now. <laughs> flashbacks? I mean, is, is, is flashbacks something that's, that happens for everybody that has PTSD? Um, no, I wouldn't say 100% of people have flashbacks, but nightmares are pretty common among people who have PTSD. So the, the, the third one, thank you for reminding me, the term for that is called re-experiencing. So it can come in the forms of either nightmares or flashbacks. Um, and, and in order to be diagnosed with PTSD, you have to have symptoms in all three of those categories, having re-experiencing, hyperarousal, or avoidance. Or and or avoidance. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that probably in every war since mankind, there afterward there have been people who have experienced uh, post traumatic stress disorder. And I know I can remember growing up hearing about people who had been in World War II who were shell shocked. Right. It, I'm assuming that's PTSD, right? It is PTSD. The the terminology um, is pretty recent. The study of it is very recent. In World War II, people called it shell shock. Um, it, it, it wasn't even really recognized after Vietnam, um, um, but, except that when you look back, uh, clearly people came back from Vietnam with PTSD, and some of the behaviors that we saw were, were a direct result of experiencing trauma and having difficulty adjusting to that experience. Are there protective factors that um, some people have? Because not everybody who goes to war comes back with PTSD, do they? 
not everybody comes back um, from experiencing a traumatic event with with PTSD. The rates are um, anywhere, depending on what study you look at, it seems like it's anywhere between um, about 12% and 50%, depending on the study. But I think most people agree it's around um, 15 to 17% of people who experience a trauma will go on to develop PTSD. The rates are higher if you look at the lifetime. Um, one of the truths about PTSD seems to be uh, that it can develop at any time in the person's life after the trauma. So it isn't necessarily something that comes on right away. Um, it can even develop 30 years later. Uh, somebody can have the experience 30 years er- earlier and then 30 years later become symptomatic with PTSD because of that event. Why is that? Why why can why can there be such a lag time? Do, do you know? That's a that's a good question. I'm not sure I can articulate an answer. Um, my my suspicion is that the the um, the ability to process that event changes over time. And so, for example, a lot of people after Hurricane Katrina who lived in the New Orleans and Mississippi area who had never been symptomatic for PTSD, even though they had been in Vietnam um, and experienced the trauma. It wasn't until um, 2006 when Hurricane Katrina hit that the symptoms emerged. So sometimes a trigger, another traumatic event, can re-traumatize the person so that they're having symptoms again. But the traumatic event wasn't necessarily the event that triggered the symptoms. It was the earlier event that was traumatic. Um, I know that uh, I was at a conference um, this year, and someone was telling me that they were working in a veterans hospital, and the majority of people coming in to be treated for PTSD were Vietnam veterans. It wasn't the folks coming back from Iraq and, and Afghanistan. That's right. It's, I think the rate is 80% of the new PTSD referrals at the VA are still Vietnam veterans. Uh, I, I, what that may mean is that the rates of um, the service members returning from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will be seeing individuals from those wars coming in for quite a long time now. You know, um, I also wonder if, if over the course of time, if if the, you can just kind of hold the trauma for so long, you know, right. it's like you just you have like a certain amount that you can cope with. Right. And um, and I can't imagine that there's so much on the news. There's all the video games, like, you know, like uh, that, that are all about war. There's so many movies. I, I don't know how someone can come home and not be triggered. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. A lot of the guys talk about how they definitely try and avoid all the triggers, avoid the news, avoid crowded places, avoid restaurants, avoid certain types of people in order to not be um, triggered and, and re-traumatized. The, the, the interesting thing, I think, is, is, in terms of developing it over a lifetime is that, you know, many of these men and women become parents and then become will become grandparents or will look at the younger group who are maybe now at war. I think for the Vietnam veterans it's possible we've been at war for a long time now and just the fact that we're at war again um, could be very uh, triggering of, of symptoms. You know, the news stories are pretty graphic. They definitely have um, reporters there and showing war zones. And so mm-hmm. e- even though it's not Vietnam, it could definitely trigger a lot of emotions for for a Vietnam veteran who who was really kind of holding back those thoughts. Are there any studies that um, talk about uh, what the families experience or the children experience whose, whose parent has PTSD from being at war? Yeah, the... the, the um, the research that I know about in terms of children of uh, who have had a parent deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan who is now um, PTSD, that their rates of anxiety disorders in the children is, is um, significantly higher than the rates of children whose parents were not deployed. Um, so, so more likely to have also, also have anxiety disorders, and it's related to experiencing the stress of the deployment with the parent, um, experiencing the stress 
um, of the parent that was at home. Um, and then once the parent returns again, experiencing the stress of the readjustment and the change, you know, a child might look forward to the parent returning home. But the, if the parent's different and there's stress there, then the kid doesn't necessarily know how to talk about that stress but is going to be experiencing all of that as well. So that's what we know, I think, at this point of, in terms of what I know, that anxiety disorders among those children is much higher. Is there family treatment for PTSD? I'm sorry, say that again? Is there family treatment for PTSD? There's a lot of couples treatment for PTSD um, where the couple learns how to communicate with each other, how to be, um, you know, respectful of certain things that are common, how to not trip over uh, each other in terms of certain common symptoms uh, associated with combat-related PTSD. One of one of the symptoms that you hear about a lot in these guys is they, uh, the two symptoms that, that the guys I talk to talk about a lot are having sleeping difficulties and being really, really irritable. And so you can see how in a relationship that irritability um, it, it can, can get people in some trouble and relationships don't tend to fare too well um, post-deployment for, for many of these guys and women. Well, and so many people have been deployed three or four times. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know a couple people that did three tours in Vietnam, but they were like one-year tours. It wasn't like they were gone for two years at a time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really stressful on a relationship. Um, so uh, I'm just, you know, it, it seems like people pay such an incredible price to, to go to war, and I think as a country we really don't, we don't even think about it. We go about our day-to-day lives, and then people come home. And I was just um, seeing in the news where veterans have a very high rate of unemployment. So, so not only do they have whatever they've experienced when they've been deployed, but they come home, and it's not all sunshine and roses for them. Right. I, I think that causes a considerable amount of stress um, in, in many of them that I've that I've talked to as well. Um, they they do feel like their symptoms are even associated with the stress of being unemployed. They feel like they'll feel better as soon as they get a job, which may or may not be true. It's hard it's hard to know, but um, uh, but a lot of them talk about how the skills they learned um, in the military don't translate very well in a civilian world. So um, they might even joke, you know, I, I know a lot about weapons, but there's not a lot of jobs. I can get out there in the civilian world that understands my my skill set. Um, and even though it's true they might know a lot about weapons, they, there are a lot of skills that um, military personnel learn that I think would be extremely valuable in our civilian world. And and uh, I think people would would enjoy hiring somebody who had been in the military and deployed to war, certain traits that are probably... Um, um, pretty characteristic of a military personnel, including being punctual, punctual and competent, and uh, and um, following commands. Uh, I think in our civilian world, those aren't necessarily traits that most civilians bring to the table, and, uh, but the military population definitely gets learn those skills. And we'll be right back to talk um, with uh, Tracy more about surviving PTSD after this commercial. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And um, we're talking with Tracy Stecker, uh, Ph.D. from Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center, about healing from PTSD. And before we get to the healing, Tracy, could you just kind of talk a little bit about what is the rate of alcohol abuse or drug abuse with folks that have PTSD with, with, that, with this group? That, that's an excellent question and very um, uh, difficult to determine right now. Here, The reality is that... Uh, even on the the standardized uh, assessment protocol that happens for every military personnel returning from the war zone, um, they they don't ask about drug use. It's not something they're allowed to ask about because if you admit to um, using or becoming dependent on on drugs in certain branches, you're you're automatically going to get separated and discharged. So it's not something we we have good data on. Um, alcohol rates is a little bit better. They do. They do. They have quite a bit of, um, quite a few programs within each branch um, concerning preventing alcohol and drug disorders. They do a lot of um, um, drug testing to make sure that people are are not using those substances. Um, they definitely interfere with functioning in in a war zone and readiness. Um, and, and yet, depending on the study you look at, it, I think the rates of, I've seen as high as 57% of people were either abusing alcohol or, or alcohol-dependent. Um, I don't think the rates are anywhere near that high in reality. That might have been a, um, a sample that was, that was struggling. Um, the, the rates are, that are presented in a lot of the literature are quite low, and what everybody knows is that, it, in reality, it's a little bit higher than that. The complicating factor is treatment. Um, because the consequences of being dependent on alcohol or drugs in the military are so severe, um, it is very difficult for the Department of Defense to monitor um, substance use because um, people, you know, will not readily admit their problems and come in and get help before they become fairly severe. Um, so, so it's a, I think, a substantial problem right now we have with the military um, in terms of there is a need. Uh, it's difficult to treat those disorders uh, anywhere, and, but especially in the military because the consequences to their career are so severe. And that's such a catch-22 because with early intervention and treatment, um, they, they can get better and they can, we can probably be a better soldier just like people can be a better employee with, with right. intervention and treatment. So yeah. um, it almost seems like the military has kind of painted themselves into this box of, um, you know, uh, don't ask, don't tell, and then we'll wait till it gets to be a crisis and then we'll do something. They're really in. They're really in a pickle, um, it, it, um, because you know they do. They do. I think for that reason, they do a lot of prevention. You know, the drug testing, the the consequences for alcohol or drug dependence um, are so severe. Just for that reason, they're hoping that that because the severe consequences in and of itself will prevent people from um, becoming dependent. And they do do. You know, some some drug testing in order to catch people who, who might be struggling. Um, and that's their, their main prevention program. And they'll show you data that, that shows how this has really helped reduce the rates of substance use problems in the military. 
it's questionable where, really whether the rates have reduced or if the reporting has just been totally different than it used to be. Um, but I think you're definitely right. If it, the early treatment would really help our guys quite a bit. It's even more complicated, though, when you look at people who had been sent to a war zone and were injured in some way. Um, and then, more, you know, let's say it's a, an emotional injury. They, they watch their buddies die, and, um, and it's overwhelming for them to deal with that pain. And, and in order to sleep without having nightmares, they self-medicate with alcohol and then become dependent, but they can't admit that they're dependent on alcohol, um, and that in of itself is a horrible catch-22. But let's say it's a physical injury, and then they're put on by the military um, some sort of pain medication, and they become dependent to the pain medication, which is relatively easy to do. Then they're also in a horrible situation because they can't admit that they've become dependent on the pain medicine that the military prescribed to them. Otherwise, they'll be dishonorably discharged, which has horrible consequences to your career and ability to get treatment. If you're dishonorably discharged in the military, you have no access to the VA. You're not allowed, you're not eligible for any sort of care for the rest of your life. So consequences for, for admitting that can be very high. I say all that, and some branches are better than others. For example, the Army is trying to, um, all these confidential, they're trying a confidential treatment program. They're trying to get people in who self-refer and give them treatment so that they don't have to tell commanders. That's an, um, they're exploring whether that will work for them. Other branches are, are, are not as open to those kind of um, options. They're basically saying don't become dependent or you're out. You're, you're not military ready. So then how do you motivate someone to get into treatment? Um, some good questions. <laughs> you wrote a curriculum about it, <laughs> right? I I think it's you know it's a it's a it's a it's a potentially a horrific situation for our military members who have some sort of pain, um, and and want to get help. It, let's say they've become dependent on a pain medicine, for example. Um, it, it's a it's a really horrific situation for them to to get help. There there are some generals who came forward. There's a general in the arm, army named General Friedrich who is very publicly admitted to becoming dependent on pain medicine um, from his injury. He 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 didn't get his injury in war. He actually got his uh, he hurt himself while working out and became dependent on the pain medicines that the Army gave to him and had a hard time admitting it um, since then has admitted to being dependent and, and has gotten a lot of help and has come forward to motivate other military members. You know, he did it, so then, therefore, he hopes other people can get treatment, too. Um, the reality is the, the likelihood of the general getting maybe some special treatment versus the more lower-ranking um, service members is is high. So, um, so many of our our folks in the military are in the reserves, um, right? And and yeah. they, you know, is, is there any is there a higher rate of PTSD in folks in the reserves than in the, um, you know, people who volunteer and go into the services? I think the, the the my understanding is that the rates are now becoming a little more similar. At first. Um, in 2003 and four and five, when you know we really hadn't deployed the Guard and Reserves prior to this war very much, and um, the rates of PTSD among Guard and Reserves were double that of active duty personnel. Uh, my understanding is that they, they've become a little closer now. We've they've been the Guard and Reserves have been deployed enough that they they all look pretty similar. Um, the rates are just as high. What are the what are the suicide rates among these folks? Uh, that's also a very difficult thing to determine because um, um, people, you know, it depends on how if it was labeled a suicide or an accident. Um, it, and I, the, the, I've seen different um, rates, and, and none of the numbers are coming to mind. They're they're all awful. Somebody was saying um, that it's I think 18 veterans per day die by suicide, but that might be all all wars. Um, 
the the rates are are very high. Um, it, it is definitely something we should be working very hard to prevent. Um, the rates are higher, we think, among individuals who have substance use disorders, who have separated from the military, um, who are who are not in care, who were dishonorably discharged, um, and because of that, it's hard to know. Uh, the real rates, because they're, they're it, you know, it just might be Joe of 21 Brown Street committed suicide as opposed to Joe as a veteran of, of the war in Iraq. Um, I, a couple of years ago, I interviewed a judge um, on this show who um, was talking about returning veterans and, and how he was really trying to advocate for a military uh, military court, like they have a mental health court or, or a drug court, because he said that he had this military veteran come before him, and he'd served two tours in Iraq, and he had been home not even a week, and um, he was driving in his car in, in heavy traffic, and he started to get started to have flashbacks, mm-hmm. and he ran the red light, and there was a policeman behind him, and the policeman pulled him over. Mm-hmm. And and he said the uh, the man just flipped out and pinned the police officer against his, his cruiser, but it was all related to having just come back from serving you know two years in Iraq and right. and and he was you know he was charged with a felony and 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 the judge said you know I didn't want to give this guy a felony you know right. um, I, I understand why that happened but there was nothing in the legal system that was prepared for that, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, it's a very different world, my understanding. I have not been deployed, but um, but but you speed over there and you, and, and you don't stop for lights. <laughs> you know, all those things yeah. that you learn in a war zone are, are not true over here. And um, to, to relearn that might take a little bit of time. Um, the truth is we do have our, our, our laws over here, and and they do have to still follow the laws over here, but there should be you know a way to understand um, context what's going on for these these guys. Are there any types of programs that help folks who are deployed reenter coming back home? You know, reenter coming home. They they have um, the, all of the service members have to do the demobilization process. Um, so they all have to go through those that that process. Um, I can't I can't tell you if how useful it is or not. I, I I don't have any data on that. But yeah, they they definitely all go through that. And we'll be right back um, to talk with Tracy more about um, healing from PTSD. In our next segment, we will talk about healing. So um, we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you living your vital life? One that is showcasing you at your full potential? There are many issues that stand in the way of most people achieving their full potential. We will discuss these issues and how to overcome them each week on The Vital Life, Awakening Your Full Potential, with host Dr. Carolyn Coker-Ross. Living the vital life often requires that we trust our own intuitive voice and that we view illness or life challenges as calls to action to reconnect with the deeper urges of our spirit or soul. Tune in Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And um, kind of post-Veterans Day, we're talking with Tracy Stecker, who's a Ph.D. at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center, about healing from PTSD. Um, the, she has written a book about um, where she shares uh, the journeys of, of five survivors of PTSD. And um, first part of the show, we've really kind of been focusing on what it is and the ramifications of it, and I think it's really important for everyone to understand is that there is healing from PTSD, and people do recover. And um, Tracy, can you kind of share with us maybe uh, some of what you've learned about surviving and healing from PTSD? Well, I, I will share my um, my experience with individuals who have been traumatized is that healing is a process that that can take the, the rest of your life, just like what we were talking about earlier. Um, triggers are something that, that is ongoing, um, being able to process through the, the event. Um, you might be able to process through it in a way that you're, you can live comfortably with having been through that experience at one point in your life, and then again at a later point in your life it might you know, emerge again um, and having to process through it, it in a different way. Um, but people heal from PTSD every day, and it is something that is a, is a treatable disease. Um, there, we wouldn't use the term cure, but we would definitely say treatable. And, it, and it's true that some people respond, um, heal from, from, from PTSD without having any formal treatment whatsoever. They, they just learn ways to process through it and come to terms with it on their own. Um, in terms of treatment, we have several treatments that are effective for dealing with tre- with PTSD, and some of those focus more on processing through the event, and some of them focus on um, learning how to cope with experiencing the event. And, and um, there are m- many um, agencies and individuals who are looking to... Uh, to develop effective medicines to treat PTSD. I know that in your book you've, you've written about one veteran. Can you share um, with our audience a little bit about his experience? Well, I actually wrote uh, about three veterans. Um, which one were, were you thinking of? Well, you know, I liked them all. So, uh, <laughs> when I, I mean, may, maybe it would be good to just talk about all of them because they're each a little different. Yeah, they are all different. Um, yeah. One of the veterans, and, and it's interesting, all three of them definitely wanted to be able to tell their story. They wanted to tell their story for totally different reasons. All three had different reasons. Um, but all three of them um, were were being altruistic. They were wanting to tell their story in order to help their um, brothers, which I thought was just a, a great uh, a great reason to tell the story. Um, one of the veterans, while he was deployed to Iraq, lost um, his buddies in in a, a, a rocket pro- rocket propelled grenade hit um, their convoy, and um, five of them were killed. Four of them instantly. One of them, um, three months later, he died of his injuries. Um, 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 three of them were very uh, close friends of his. And he really had a difficult time coming to terms with the loss. Uh, One, because um, the death was number 4,000 in Iraq, and there were a lot of news stories about that, 4,000 dead in Iraq. And he thought it was so disrespectful that they became a number instead of the the people that they were. And he wanted to be able to share about the people that they were. Um, and so that was really important to them. And he didn't want to say, he had a hard time with the idea of saying goodbye. Um, he thought if he, he somehow said goodbye to them, then that was dishonoring their memory. And so the idea of closure and processing through that experience for him was something he really had to come to terms with. Um, 
when it became the idea of making a tribute to his buddies and being able to explain who they were in his words, um, he really liked that idea, and, and then the idea of closure came um, naturally for him. And so that that's a very interesting story. Um, it's it's uh, sad, and um, and but it's you know pretty true experience. I've talked to many guys who lost their buddies in Iraq, who held their buddies while they died or held their buddies after they were dead. And, and many of them have just horrible survivor guilt about, you know, why did they survive and, and their buddies uh, didn't and how hard it was to watch them die the way that they did. How was he afterwards? Was he able to, did he feel more, I guess, in control of his life? Was he or was he still feeling isolated and symptomatic? He was. He. It was. Um, it was such a, a pleasant experience because it's not clear whether telling that story would be helpful for him or not. Um, you know, there was no way to predict how that would be for him um, because he did have to get into all of those details. He really is doing great. Um, he's. He's. <laughs> kind of a playful guy, and I guess he was very playful before the event and then wasn't for a while. He was um, sullen and, and pretty angry and irritable and, and just not happy. Um, but it, um, he sounds like he's very much back into the play mode and was able to let go. And, and he told the story, he, when, he, when he told the story, when he decided to tell the story, he, all, the five people who died, he got in touch with all of their family members and asked permission whether or not it was okay. And so he did it with everybody's blessing. And it was really a, just a beautiful opportunity for him to heal um, because everybody gave their blessing to tell the story from his own voice. And, and um, the difference is pretty marked how happy he is. Unfortunately, he found out he's being deployed again to Afghanistan in February. So he had a little bit of a dip in happiness when, when he found out about that. But uh, the dip didn't last very long. He he's, seems to be back in play mode. So will he be at more risk for uh, PTSD because he's already experienced it once? Yes, he will be more at risk. Okay. Um, and you also talked about Herschel. Herschel... Um, Herschel had uh, he had a uh, experience with a young Iraqi child who had he had befriended, and the Iraqi child had um, his her father was the enemy, and they they did not know that. And she, uh, the father strapped her with explosives with C4, and she came up to blow up the gate. He was a military police. Um, in charge of security at the gate, which is how he got to know many of these Iraqi children. So she came up to the gate. She threw a grenade and um, ran to where most of the crowd of people were because she was going to um, hit her cell phone. I guess if you hit send, that's what activates the explosives. And um, after she threw the grenade and started running toward where the people were, he 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 shot her. And um, he didn't want to kill her at first. He w- he was just trying to slow her down. But she um, was she was she kept moving forward. So in the end, he did kill her and um, and held her while she died. And he had just terrible guilt about that experience and how to come to terms with the fact that he broke what he thought his golden rule was, which was never hurt women and children. Well, and I think one of the things that I read in in the story was that um, as a ranger, they use beads to count, like, distance. And he had lost his beads, and he had gone to, like, they had some, like, a thing at the market, and she was there, and and he was trying to communicate to her about these beads. and, And it was, like, a while later, she came to him with these beautiful beads yeah, that she had found for him. And, and, and then having to see her strapped with a C4 and having to shoot her that, yeah, that she'd had that connection. And that's right. He definitely did feel bonded to her and he, she, she had made him the bracelet. So she didn't understand what ranger beads were, but she tried and she, she made a bracelet for him and he still has the, um, the bracelet. He talks to it at night. It hangs over his bed. Um, and it's his memory to never, 
to never um, hurt somebody again or to try and make it right. Um, it was very hard for him to uh, accept himself after that event. He felt like he had broken a golden rule and was uh, just furious about at the father for putting a child in those circumstances. You know, I think that uh, there, there's something about you. You have this connection and, you know, you have that trust and then to have that violated yeah. um, in such an extreme way must just be horrid. I, you yeah. know, because it seems to me like PTSD is connected to it's a relationship in, in, many, in many respects, whether you're a victim of rape or incest or whatever. I think you can have PTSD from natural disasters, but it, it just seems like the people that I've worked with who have it's been some type of a relational experience um, seem to suffer more. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that might be true. You can um, definitely experience that. Um, for example, Ray um, in the story, his PTSD is related to uh, a natural disaster it's with Hurricane Katrina. Um, but the thing that was so hard for him was when he lost his wife. Um, she did not die of the, the, from the hurricane, but she died shortly after when they were still healing and recovering from the hurricane. But it was watching her pain over the things that she lost that, that hurt him so bad. It wasn't, you know, I think had he been on his own and just dealing with it on his own, it wouldn't have been as bad for him. But watching her struggle with recovery was uh, overwhelming for him. And we'll be right back after this commercial um, to talk more about healing from PTSD. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about um, healing from PTSD with Tracy Stecker, who is a PhD at uh, Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. And Tracy's written a book called Five Survivors, Personal Stories of Healing from PTSD and Traumatic Events. And, um, you know, you've talked about a couple of the folks in your book, but can you tell us about, um, is it Jacob? Uh, I think it. I think the the name was Alex. Alex. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Alex is, um, in some ways, represents the um, the the soldier who is struggling with substance use disorders. Uh, he is somebody who has had repeated problems with substance use. Um, gotten into a, a lot of trouble with his substances. In fact, there's one incident where he had returned from war. He had a traumatic experience at war. Uh, he, he actually watched um, one of his own soldiers shoot and kill other soldiers, um, which was very traumatic for him to watch. His, own, his own soldiers? His own soldiers, yeah. Okay. It was a U.S. service member who turned, came out from the stress clinic with somebody, uh, it was somebody with PTSD who left the stress cl- clinic at um, Camp Liberty and turned, o- opened up and started firing at uh, other U.S. service members. And he did kill several 
um, and, and he also died um, that day. But Alex watched this um, this happen, and he was already somebody who had been struggling with with substance use, um, and and he really struggled with the idea of coming home because he felt like um, the 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 he was still working through that betrayal. And he thought that the lack of structure back at home would really trigger his substance use again, which it did <laughs> quite a bit. And there's a lot of stories about some of the um, the problems he had. It was very hard for me to write uh, his story in particular because I I just didn't want to admit to to you know the world some of the scenarios he had he had gotten himself into um it was painful to write it i just i really wanted to minimize the trouble he had created and he said you know no i let's just tell it tell it tell tell people what i did so nobody else has to go through this i i've got to be helpful to people i can't continue to hurt people so so tell it and i mean it was just very hard to write it out um for me, but I, I did it and, and told people the, the trouble he had gotten himself into. But one thing he had done was he had, um, he was going to, he's in the guard and he was going to his drill weekend, so he was in uniform and he uses PCP, which um, does not oh make me look like a normal person. And so he used PCP uh, the morning he was going to drill. And driving to drill in uniform, he was psychotic. He was out of his mind, and he was pulled over, and and he was babbling. And the police thought he was uh, a terrorist because he was in uniform, and he was babbling. And they thought he was speaking Arabic, which he he very well may have been because he he knew a lot of Arabic. A lot of the guys know certain words, but they thought he was a terrorist. Um, and um, he wasn't able to even, you know, talk about what was really going on, that he was high as a kite. He just was, you know, in another place. And and they hurt him quite bad, um, arresting him, because they didn't believe he was a, a U.S. soldier who was just uh, under the influence. They thought he was a terrorist. So um, that was a pretty difficult story to tell. He was redeployed, and he was doing really well back in uh, a war zone. He decided to help guys, um, he, and he's he's into fitness, and he turned all of that energy into helping people become fit and learn better ways of eating and how to work out and was training people. And, um, and he came home from his year-long deployment again, the second one, and he immediately started struggling, struggling again with substance use. So... He's, his story is definitely ongoing. He is um, he's struggling with um, um, being home and, and not turning to substances. He seems to do okay once he's in the war zone, but back at home he really is not doing very well at all. Yeah, that's um, that's really sad. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm curious to know what happened, um, and I'm sure others are too, what happened when the police found out he wasn't a terrorist? Was he let go or no he was he was um incarcerated i think that time for a three week period if memory serves me right. He was in there for quite a while oh, wow. um, and and uh and what's interesting to me is that there are certain branches and we talked about this earlier that that kind of trouble with the law would automatically have you discharged from from the military um He's one that that's able. He's you know been able to stay in and still deploy to a war zone, which is kind of interesting. How much um, you know that it's different tolerance. Yeah, yeah, much tolerance they had. Yeah. Um, in in writing your book, what did you learn? I learned one. The one thing I learned for sure was that I learned what a hero was. I had never had any idea what a hero was. Um, it wasn't a term I had ever used. Um, I thought a hero was somebody who, you know, rescued a cat out of a tree or helped somebody who was in a hard time and then turned around and got the applause. Um, I thought, you know, a hero was being, you know, in the right spot at the right time and then getting credit for being a decent person. So it wasn't anything that I was very interested in. Um, but I, But I did learn that being a hero is doing the right thing at the right time, even though you're going to be haunted. 
um, that that it the consequences are, are really hard to live with. So, for example, these guys have decided have, have chosen to help us um, through these wars, and they know they they definitely know. I've heard many of them say they knew what they were getting into. They knew it would be hard for them, and they made that choice anyway. And they didn't make it for them. They made it for the community. They made it for everybody. They made it for humankind. They're trying to do the right thing, even though they know they're going to suffer potentially. Um, terribly with some of the things that they saw and experienced and had to do. So I think that was one thing I learned. Um, I had no idea um, what a hero was and and how uh, really interesting and important our service members are. What would you like our audience to take away knowing about um, healing from PTSD? One, that, that it's possible. Um, you, we, um, if you have experienced a traumatic event, um, I, I hear a lot of people ask, will I ever forget? Will, um, will this ever go away? The answer to that is no. You will never forget. You have probably been changed um, because you experienced that event. But the good news is you can heal from PTSD, and the pain that you're experiencing does not always have to be so severe. There are all sorts of ways people heal, heal from PTSD. Some are professional help. Some are maybe not professional help, maybe in your in your own way. But it is possible to feel better. It is possible to be productive. It is possible to be happy again. It is possible to feel healthy again. It's possible to be feel stable again. And and I hope that everybody does know that, that there's hope and that things can get better and that there are a lot of people out there um, who are willing to help you along that journey. Um, how can people get in touch with you, Tracy, if they want to learn more or they want to get your book? I, I think the best way to get in touch with me is to send me an email. Um, is it okay if I just give out my email address? It sure is. Okay, my email address is Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y dot Stecker, S-T-E-C-K-E-R, at Dartmouth dot E-D-U. And so if anybody's interested in learning more about um, healing from PTSD or they want to learn, how would somebody get your book? The book is available on all sorts of websites. Um, you could either just Google it or you can, it's in Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Hazelden is the a publisher, and so mm-hmm. a great place to get it might be at the Hazelden bookstore. Um, but but really, you could Google it and find it all sorts of places right now. Um, and so, are you? What's your current research? Are you currently researching anything? Yes, I'm studying ways to get people, who are returning service members who have PTSD, who are, or who are suicidal, um, who are resisting help into help. Um, that sounds like really important research. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's good that people keep hopeful and and know that there are there are ways to heal and that we can we can get you in and and um, life can improve. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking time to be on our show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and a good have a good week and a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.